I want to talk about this thing called The Shack, the novel The Shack, the book. And the title of my message is, All Roads Lead Where? Finding God at the Shack. And I'm going to refer to this. This, this shack, the reason it's so popular, this book addresses the very issue of our summer series. What happens when there's a time of great sorrow, of desperation, when life crashes in on you? Where is God? And the book addresses that in a very entertaining, uh, very thought-provoking manner and way. I'm going to address that in a, in a moment. But before we talk about anything about what the shack says is the answer to those deeper questions about uh, life's trials and, and troubles, let's turn first of all to the Word of God. What is, how does the Word of God address these issues? In the shack, he talks about great trials and tribulations, pain that people suffer, pain and suffering. But eventually in the shack, he gets around to discussing the biggest trial, the biggest trouble, the biggest pain, the biggest uh, terrible thing of all, and that is the issue of hell, an eternal hell. And he wrestles with that as many people have throughout history and comes to a conclusion we're going to talk about in the shack later. But before we look at the shack, let's see how the ancient words of Jesus Christ himself addresses that issue. We're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So Jesus right away says that the broad way, the way that most people go, leads actually to destruction. Of course, the saying, all roads lead to Rome, and it's picked up in theological circles, all roads lead to heaven. And there's ideas going around here of many people, including many evangelical Christians, a remarkable number of, growing number of evangelical Christians would like to have an idea that in some way, some manner, that eventually every road, whether you go the Buddhist road, or whether you go the Muslim road, or whether you go uh, the road of, of, uh, of simply trying to be a good person, that whatever path you take, eventually all roads lead to heaven. Uh, that's not the case at all. In fact, uh, it says the way is broad that leads to destruction and many who enter through it. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. So although that Jesus is the Savior of the world, it's very clear from the Scriptures that relatively few are going to benefit from what Christ did on the cross. Most, according to Jesus himself, are going to go to a place called destruction. So because of this problem, because relatively few are the ones who will be saved and most will go to a place called destruction, verse 15 makes it all this more important. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They are hungry wolves. Now, Christ said that they are going to be wolves, but the key is that they look like sheep. Uh, Very few people are going to come up to you and say, I'm a false prophet. Do you want to join our group? It's going to look Christian. It's going to be very appealing. They're going to have Bibles in their hands, perhaps, uh, but they're hungry wolves. And then he changes metaphors. You be careful when you change metaphors. You've got to push in the clutch first. But he talks about they're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. In this verse 16, he says, and you will know them by their fruits. How do you tell if they're a false prophet or not? Well, he says, you look at the fruits. And he said, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Verse 17. So every tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the flames. Verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. Now, this possibly is one of the most misunderstood passages from the Sermon on the Mount. And even in many conservative evangelical uh, circles, you'll hear Christians say, well, you can always tell if a person's a false prophet. Look at their fruit. Do they live good lives? Are they nice people? Do they pay their bills on time? Do they love their families? Well, is that really the fruit uh, that uh, Jesus is asking us to look at? Now, remember, there's two metaphors being worked on here. Jesus says they're going to be in sheep's clothing. And in effect, Christ is saying, don't look at the clothing because the sheep's clothing is going to mislead you. So don't look at the clothing. Instead, look at the fruit. Well, is the fruit of a prophet the lifestyle, how good of a person they are? Or could that better be described as the sheep's clothing? And so what I think we find here is the the fact that the fruit of a prophet 
is his prophecies, what he says about the nature of God or what he says when he predicts the future. We don't have time to turn, but back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18, God, in God's word, he sets up criteria on how we, do, we are to know whether one is a true or a false prophet. The fruit of a fig tree is figs. The fruit of a apple tree is the fruit of a prophet is prophecy. What he says about the nature, and I want you to keep this in mind as we go further, but what he says about the very nature of God, that's what's talked about in Deuteronomy 13, and also uh, what he says about what's going to happen in the future, that's covered in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You will know them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look at all the good works, all the things we did, all the things we did citing your name. But the Lord goes on to explain, verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 6, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So in Christ's own words, and let me say, this is a hard passage. This is one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus because, i, I be honest with you, I'm uncomfortable with it. I would love Jesus to say here, you know, if they try their best and do a good job, who knows, maybe we let them in. But he's very clear that most people are going to a place called destruction. And it's because he never knew them, never had that personal relationship with them. We understand elsewhere in Scripture that comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that his death, burial, and resurrection, that we're to put our trust and faith in that for salvation, not in the fact that we perform miracles or done many good deeds. So, um, again, this is a hard saying, and throughout history, people have wrestled with this, including Christians. And, and you'll see uh, many people, even early in their lives, who were conservative Christians who believed in the literal word of God and believed in a very real hell and took very seriously the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7. But as they began to get older, and as we begin to get older, people very close to us, we see them pass on. We see our, our father, perhaps, or our mother. We've been through this. Many of us in this building have been through this. And we see people very dear to us that we, from all knowledge that we have, that we know that person does not have a relationship with Christ. And it makes you desperate sometimes, I think, to seek out some other possible way or path. And uh, that's what I want to address in this issue called uh, the shack. Now, I want to take you through this thing called the shack and uh, why I think every Christian needs to address. The shack tells a story of a tragedy in the life of uh, of, a, of a man, Mackenzie or Mac, and, and Mac goes through a, a tragedy in his life and is seeking God and, and really believes that he's lost God or that maybe even God, he doesn't even understand God anymore. It's a ter- terrible tragedy he's gone through, but the story addresses this very issue that most people have, including Christians, and it does it in such a way that it's very attractive. So I want you to understand that one of the reasons that we're dealing with the shack, and every Christian I think needs to know this, is because it is so popular. The first thing I want to talk about is the popularity of the shack. Uh, We have to be addressing issues that today's culture is addressing. It's often said of us as Christians that we're answering all the questions people aren't asking. Well, it's important that we often answer questions that people are asking, and a lot of them deal with the shack. I have four uh, examples of the popularity of the shack. First of all, the shack in 2008 became a New York Times bestseller, shot to number one overall of books on the New York Times bestseller list. Example number two, currently, right now, it has been for 63 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and is currently ranked number three in paperback trade fiction section of the New York Times bestseller list. This is after over a year of being on the list. They have now printed uh, over 7 million copies of the book The Shack, including the audio edition and the Kindle edition on Amazon. Over 7 million copies are out there. And uh, brace yourself for this one. You probably already guessed number four. The movie's on its way. The website's already up, www.theshackmovie.com. 
It's already uh, in production, or I don't know if they've started production yet, but the, the wheels are turning toward bringing out the movie version of The Shack, and then it's really going to impact our culture because, as you probably know, most Americans don't read. They wait for the movie. The movie's coming, and uh, it's very popular. But also, I want you to know that also The Shack is fiction. Now, this is important because it's often said, why do we even want to discuss the beliefs, the doctrines, the theology in the book The Shack? Because The Shack is actually fiction. So we shouldn't talk about it. We shouldn't worry about the doctrines that are in it. Now, we, I heard this same argument. Uh, our, our ministry in 2006 produced a documentary on Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which, of course, later that year came out in the movie, The Da Vinci Code. And uh, right now, I don't know if you've heard, but Dan Brown's sequel's coming out, the sequel to The Da Vinci Code, called The Lost Symbol. And uh, very, very popular, but he has theology, Dan Brown did, in his book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, about Jesus being married and goddess worship and all kinds of things like that. And, but here's what I heard from a lot of Christians who like to read. They like, they like the book. And they, Hey, James, it's just fiction. Give it a pass. It's not a true story. It's not supposed to be. Well, in order to give it a pass, you've got to, first of all, understand that there's f- four specific types of Christian fiction. And I want to address why the type of fiction of the shack must be addressed by today's thinking Christian. Now, there's four, more than four kinds of Christian fiction. There's, there's historical, uh, there's Christian science fiction now. There's even Christian romance novels now. Do you know that? Kind of a G-rated harlequin uh, romance novels out there. But, uh, but Dave Miller on his blog site, and he talked about the shack, he correctly identifies at least four major categories of fiction. And let's just do a little background study and understand why fiction can be very powerful and why some fiction, I think, must be addressed by the body of Christ. The first type of fiction that we find in your notes, you find this is uh, type one or example one, would be what you could call realistic fiction. Realistic fiction is a tempest stories that to illustrate general Christian principles, general Christian principles or, or morality using a somewhat realistic setting. So it's just simply illustrating Christian ideals or principles in a realistic setting. You could call it realistic uh, fiction. Now, some examples of that, two examples would be facing the giants. Uh, I don't know if you saw that movie, Sherwood Pictures is produced, realistic fiction. And another example, more recently, also by Sherwood Pictures, would be Fireproofed. Any of you seen that? Uh, Fireproof is realistic fiction. Now, again, the purpose of that, you don't necessarily want to, to, to get into the theology of realistic fiction because that's not the purpose of it. It's to, it's to, uh, the real purpose is to just illustrate moral values. Uh, or our general Christian values. A second type, however, of uh, Christian fiction would be foundational fiction, foundational Christian fiction. And um, this is uh, compatible with perhaps the Christian worldview. So you'll find some things that are compatible in there with the Christian worldview, but the purpose is not to explain doctrine. It's a fictional setting in a fictional world that may borrow some from Christian ideals or principles, but it's not trying to teach those things. Some examples of that would be Tolkien's uh, The uh, Lord of the Rings, a book and movie, you may have seen that. Now, it's true Tolkien was a Catholic, and you can see some, he will draw some from Catholicism and maybe from Christianity, but the purpose of of the Lord of the Rings is not to teach doctrine or to explain doctrine. It's just foundational in nature. A second example would be C.S. Lewis, the uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, for example, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, This is a mythical world, a a fictional world in which C.S. Lewis, who is a Christian, was a Christian, may borrow Christian principles and ideals, but not trying to teach doctrine. You might remember the lion character in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslam. Uh, Obviously, there's some parallels with Christ, correct? But the purpose you understand, and C.S. Lewis himself warned about this, he was not trying to teach Christology. He was not saying, if you read my book, you'll understand what Jesus is really like. No, he just borrows some concepts or ideas from Christ and brings them into his foundational fiction. A third type of fiction would be, a Christian fiction, would be allegorical fiction. This is where commonly held, commonly held uh, spiritual truths are illustrated by fiction. And uh, the, uh, the best example of this, of course, would be the classic John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. This would be a classification of allegorical Christian fiction. Now, we would have to hold books like this to a higher standard doctrinally because now they're attempting to actually illustrate using fiction 
uh, biblical principles and doctrines and, and, and flesh those out more in an allegorical sense. And uh, the doctrinal content must be held to a higher standard. But the shack doesn't come from any of these first three. I think it very clearly comes from a fourth category of Christian fiction, which could be called didactic uh, fiction. Or fiction, didactic, fiction that's designed to teach a particular doctrine or, or spiritual concept. The whole purpose behind it is to teach some spiritual concepts. Uh, for example, some other examples of didactic fiction would be probably the most famous recently would be the Left Behind series. Uh, you have uh, Left Behind, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, or maybe you saw the movie version starring uh, Kirk Cameron. But the idea is it's not just a movie about the future or a book about the future. Tim LaHaye is trying to teach you a doctrine, and he's using fiction to do it. Now, what he's trying to teach is, is um, uh, millennialism. He's trying to teach uh, dispensationalism, and he's trying to actually specifically teach premillennial, pre-tribulation uh, millennialism uh, and the, the doctrine of the rapture. And so it's very clear that this is what he's doing, what he's trying to do uh, in, in this particular approach. Another example would be uh, Frank Peretti's books. Uh, Frank Peretti's the, This Present Darkness, in his other book, uh, Piercing the Darkness, Frank Peretti was, was trying didactic fiction to teach people what the spirit world is like. What about angels? What about demons? And the shack very clearly, I believe, falls in this category of didactic fiction. We must address the doctrines of didactic fiction if they deviate or vary uh, from the real world, from uh, biblical truths. Now, you say, well, James, how do you know that the shack was designed for or purposely trying to teach doctrine? There's a number of good reviews and critiques of the shack out there on the web. One of the ones I recommend is James D. Young. Uh, Dr. James D. Young is, uh, ha- is a Ph.D., has a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. He's a seminary professor right now at Western uh, Seminary in Portland, Oregon. And uh, Dr. De Young is a personal, has, uh, was a, for years, for a dozen years, was friends with the author of the shack, William P. Young, or he prefers to go by Paul Young. He was friends with them. Their, their family celebrated birthdays together. They ate in each other's homes. In fact, they started an, a, a kind of a Christian think tank where they worked together. Paul Young is a graduate of a Bible college and seminary professor here. They, they got together and began to discuss Christian doctrine, but there was a conflict that developed, a conflict that developed about a very important doctrine, a doctrine that James DeYoung felt like could never be compromised. And because of that, he came to a fork in the road with the author of The Shack, William Young. Now, this was, this was before the shack, about four years before the shack was published. It's these same doctrines which come to a head in the book. And with per- personal knowledge of the author himself, James DeYoung says, undoubtedly, the purpose of this was to teach the very things we were discussing four years earlier. And I'm going to get to those doctrines specifically in just a moment. But just to give you a feel for the background of the book and, and uh, the events that led up to the book, including something, a very important event that happened in uh, Paul Young's personal life before he read, uh, wrote the book, which I think, think deeply impacted the writing of the book. And the fact, interestingly, the book almost was never published. And there's a reason for that. So just to give you a background, I want to take you to a, a video clip of an interview that where Paul Young, the author of The Shack, is being interviewed on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's uh, a television show called The Hour, and the host is George Strabanopoulos, and he's interviewing the, the author of The Shack, and I think we can get, glean, uh, glean some real insight and background as to the events that led up to the book The Shack. Let's watch that video. All right, so here's William Paul Young's story. We're going to call him Paul because that's what he goes by. Uh, Paul was born in Alberta, raised by missionary parents in New Guinea. Did not have the easiest upbringing. In fact, he was abused as a child. In his adult life, he ended up cheating on his wife. The relevance to this story is this. It was that situation that led Paul to reconnect to his Christian faith which ultimately led to the writing of the book, The Shack. When he wrote The Shack, Paul was a working man in Oregon. Only had a few copies printed. The idea was just given to his kids and a few friends. But when they read it, 
They loved it. And they were the ones who convinced Paul to try to get his book published. We printed off 15 copies, little spiral bound thing with a little plastic cover on it. The only problem was, well, he had a brick wall. 26 publishers turned that manuscript down, but Paul and his friends did not stop. So 2007, they spent $300 of their own money on advertising. They started shipping copies of the books out of his garage. Suddenly, through bloggers and church groups, word got out about the shack. And just over a year later, that thing went number one. Now, of course, anytime you write a book about God, there's bound to be controversy. Some preachers have denounced the book. How many of you have read the book, The Shack? Okay. If you haven't, don't. They say that it twisted the message of the Bible, calling the shack deeply subversive and dangerous. The book itself reads like a thriller, so it's not your typical Bible story, right? You got a serial killer, you got a murdered child, and a creepy shack in the wilderness. Paul Young, everyone. Well, the book was published. 26 publishers said no, especially Christian publishers. There were reasons why it was rejected by virtually every Christian publisher. Eventually, some of his friends that he'd been studying with and actually discussing some of these doctrinal issues that he was concerned about, they got together and they took about a dozen credit cards, personal credit cards, maxed them out to have the money to print this thing, spiral bound. And then they invested $300 in a website. And the rest, they say, is history. Well, why is it so popular? I'm convinced that one of the things that makes this book so popular is that it addresses one of the most important issues, one of the most universal concerns that we have, and that is the problem of evil. If you're taking notes, it deals with the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to people? Why is there uh, earthquakes, calamities? Why is there illness? Why why do people, why does the, uh, the life crash in? How about this? Why, why does God allow people to die? Or let's just get to the ultimate evil. How in the world, why do people, some people, most people, Jesus said, eventually end in a Christless eternity the Bible calls hell? Well, he addresses those issues. He attempts to answer those things. And let's talk about the problem of evil. Throughout history, people have tried to address this. And the danger is almost always an attempt to address that ends up violating the very nature of God. For example, atheists have dealt with the problem of evil. And atheists, the answer to the problem of evil is the reason bad things happen, well, why doesn't God prevent the evil? If God is love and God loves people, why does he not stop these evil things from happening? The answer for the atheist was the reason is because there's no God. That's how they address it. But the problem is that violates not only the nature, but the very existence of God. Even in Christian circles, you have people who are called open theists. And open theists attempt to address the problem of evil. And what an open theist will tell you is they'll say, well... uh, Evil happens, God is good, God doesn't want evil to happen, but God doesn't know the future. And therefore, he didn't know those bad things were going to, he was as surprised as you were. And that's called open theism. Of course, that violates the very nature of God because the the scriptures are clear that God knows everything. Uh, He's omnipotent. He knows everything, including the future. When bad things happen, uh, uh, a Jewish author 30 years ago, uh, Harold Kushner, also attempted to address the, the, the issue with a New York Times bestselling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, as some evangelicals pointed out right away, well, there are no good people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, that said, you can all agree that while all of us might be uh, sinners, there are some of us are worse than others, Right? And so why do bad things happen to comparatively good people? Well, his answer basically is that God is good and God is loving. He acknowledges the existence of God, but uh, God was unable to stop evil. And that's why bad things happen. Again, that that violates the nature of God because God is also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't need our permission before he does it as well. Well, let me take it more recently, last year, and also more locally to right down the street. Let me talk about Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is the, a philosophy professor, or a New Testament professor, rather, at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he's got an interesting story to tell. He was actually an evangelical Christian at one point. In fact, he was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, also Wheaton College, But it was when he went to Princeton to work on his Ph.D., he began to doubt the Word of God. And uh, ironically, he sat under the uh, 
the great eminent New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, who actually wrote the book, New Testament documents, are they reliable? His resounding answer was yes. Nevertheless, Bart Ehrman, his student, began to doubt and question the authenticity, accuracy, the canonicity, the uh, textual uh, reliability of the New Testament, and eventually lost his faith, became pretty much agnostic, and he wrote a book called Misquoting God, shot to number one in the New York Times bestseller list, prolific author. That man's a millionaire selling the books where he doubts the word of God. His most recent book, or his book he published last year, is called God's Problem. And God's Problem by Bar Ehrman is, again, dealing with the issue, why do bad, the thing, same thing the shack deals with, why do bad things happen? The problem of evil. And he basically, what uh, Bart Ehrman uh, comes up with is that the Bible has no answer. The Bible contradicts itself. The Bible, you cannot go to God's word and know and answer the question of the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen? Well, obviously, the scriptures do answer that question. I won't have time to go into this, but you need to go to the book of Job. Uh, other places in scriptures as well, but no places clearly is in the book of Job. In fact, I just got through listening to a series by your pastor, Stephen Davey, and, uh, on, on Job. In fact, come to find out, it's actually a uh, three series on the book of Job. Not a three sermon series, but three series of sermons. <laughs> there must have been like two dozen or so. Now, for those of you who missed that year at church... Get the CDs. Well worth it. And he addresses the issue. The Bible does talk about those issues and problems. But I think the reason this is so uh, appealing is because the shack also addresses this. Unfortunately, it doesn't come up with a, uh, a biblical solution. Now, let me give you the background of the shack. When you read the shack, I'll be, be honest, I, it was hard for me to get through the first chapter. After chapter 2 and 3, it really picked up, and I could see why millions of people. It is a, it is a very interesting read. Uh, it's got a surprise kind of twist ending. I won't ruin it for you. It, it definitely holds your attention. Let me just tell you the background on it. It's, it's fiction. Uh, it's a story of, uh, first of all, the great sadness. Mackenzie Phillips is a former seminary student, who, uh, graduate, who uh, has a tragedy happen in his life. His little daughter, uh, Missy, comes up missing and has actually been killed. Now, he was saving the, the life of one of his other children when this happens, and you, you can read the story, but it's very gripping. It will, touch, it will really grip your heart. And it, this puts, this disappearance and ultimate death of his daughter, puts Mackenzie Phillips, or mostly he's called Mac in the, in the book, puts him into a tailspin. His life has come crashing in, and all these problems begin to echo. Why do bad things happen? Did God not know that murder was going to get my daughter? Could God not prevent this from happening? Why did this happen to me? What have I done? Where is God? Now, come to find out, Mac is in a struggle, just like Bart Ehrman, just like uh, Kirshner, uh, just like probably many of us in this room, struggling with these issues. And as you read the book, you, you suffer with Mac through those questions. Why did his daughter have to die? Why couldn't have this happened to someone else or not at all? How could God allow bad things like this to happen? So it's a, it's a story of Mac's struggle, but then it's a story of Mac gets a letter. Mac actually gets a letter from God. And God wants to meet Mac at the shack. Mac at the shack is the heart of the story. It tells a two-day period in Mac's life when he goes to the shack based on a letter he got in the mail from God. God wants to explain things to him. And when he opens the door to the shack, he comes face to face with God. Now, let me say this. There's, everything in the shack is not a problem. There, there, there's a reason why the book's appealing. And one of the overall themes of the shack is that if you could spend uh, just a brief encounter with God, all your questions would be answered. You wouldn't have a qu- problem with evil. You wouldn't have, you would know the answer to those questions. And that is comforting to people. And I think that anyone who has gone through what the book calls The Great Sorrow, is going to identify with what this person is going through, Mac, the Mac character in the book. So uh, the issue is, though, how it's addressed. How does Mac get the answers? What are the answers to the problem of evil? And like what happens with uh, Kirshner, what happens with Bart Ehrman, what happens with others who've attempted to address the question, God's nature, God's very nature is at stake in the shack. 
Let's talk about the problem of God's nature. To resolve the problem of evil, um, what happens is Paul Young ends up compromising the very nature of God. I want to talk about some of those things with you. First of all, I want to deal with the question of the Trinity. The question of the Trinity. When Mac opens the door, he doesn't find one person. He does find three persons. The question of the Trinity, he first is introduced to God the Father. God the Father is called in the book Papa. And come to find out he, or maybe you should say she, is a large African-American woman. And God the Father, Papa, the African-American woman, is the first one of the Godhead to address and talk with uh, Mackenzie Phillips and explain to Mac what went wrong and what the, the answer to this. Now, I, I had some friends of mine who are critics of the shack, and they said, See, God, Oprah is God. And that's not what he was trying to say, obviously. Uh, but it does cause, cause some questions of concern. When you go to the movie site... People are already suggesting, uh, casting the movie. Who's going to play the part of Mac? Who's going to play the part of the Holy Spirit? And there are suggestions for who plays the part of God the Father, Papa. And some have suggested Queen Lativa. Queen Lativa would be perfect for that. Now, let me just say, I have a problem with this. Uh, Anytime that you try to make an image of God in people's mind, this happened in other movies as well, it ends up... In a, in a sense, becoming like an icon or even like an idol. And I always have problems with trying to p- p- depict. Now, some of, some of the critics have gone so far as to say, in a sense, this may even prom- be promoting goddess worship. Well, the truth of the matter is, God is neither male nor female, but God created in his image both male and female. However, God chooses to reveal himself as he, not it, and not she. And when Christ came, he came as a man. And so we have to, I think, be true to the biblical imagery that we have of God. And not, you know, I really, not just with this. It's not the fact it's an African-American woman, a large African-American woman. I, I even have problems with the movie The Ten Commandments. You know, I, I still can't read the book of Exodus without hearing the voice of Charlton Heston. I, I don't want to be reading the Bible and hear Queen Lativah or Oprah in my head. It's, this has, fiction is more powerful than you think. Now also, Mackenzie Phillips is introduced to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus, who happens to be a, a carpenter of Middle Eastern descent wearing a plaid flannel shirt. So Jesus talks to him, and then later in the book, he's introduced to the third person of the Godhead, God the Spirit, Sara you. Now, Sara you is uh, described as an ethereal, mysterious, uh, you can't quite see her, translucent perhaps, uh, third person of the Trinity, also a woman. And uh, some critics have pointed out actually the name um, uh, uh, Sara you is actually a mythical river in India, which according to Hindu folklore was tied to uh, the religion of India, Hinduism. And uh, some have said, see, he's trying to introduce Hinduism. Well, I don't know if it's that, it's that uh, diabolical. In fact, one of the bloggers who happens to know uh, the author, Paul Young, said, no, what happened was Paul Young, during the writing of the book, he was calling up one of those support lines. You ever do that, the 800 support line? But it rang, guess where? In India. And so he says, hey, what is the Indian word? The, what is the, uh, the word for wind? And uh, there were several words that were batted around, but this was one of them, so he decided to employ, employ that word. So I'll, I'll, take, I'll give him a pass on that and take his word at it. But again, I, 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 st- I have a problem, an issue with me, I think, on God's nature and a portrayal of the Trinity in such a way because I can promise you, I don't know if any of you saw the, uh, the movie back in the 70s, Oh God, with George Burns. But things like that stick in your mind and and change the way you think about God. And I'm I'm not at all comfortable with that. Uh, Let me also talk about the question of modalism. The question of modalism. Some critics of the shack have said that actually the doctrine that's taught here is not the doctrine of the Trinity, but the doctrine of modalism. Modalism is an ancient heresy. It's also called uh, Sabellianism. And the doctrine is that there's not three persons in the Godhead. There's actually one person going under different names. So the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Father, simply switching hats or going under different modes or going under different names. And they'll refer, for example, to page 166. And let me read for you. 
This is from the shack, uh, page 166, on the nature of God. Uh, This is Sophia, which is another personification of the Holy Spirit, talking to Mac. And Sophia says, haven't you seen the wounds of Papa too? See, he he noticed that uh, Papa, that she had the marks of the cross, uh, the stigmatas in, in her hands. But she's the father, not the son. And so he said, haven't you seen the wounds of Papa too? Mac, I didn't understand them. Sophia, for love, she chose the way of the cross because of love. So the idea is that, that father was actually crucified. Now, this is an a- ancient heresy that's called patripassianism. Tertullian was the one who, who framed that term, and it, it simply means that the father had the passion. The father was the one that was crucified. And in, uh, in his, um, his book, Against Praxius, uh, Tertullian talks about how that's a heresy, one of the early church fathers. And let me just say this. I, I don't really think that, that um, Paul Young was trying to teach the doctrine. I think that this is simply a, an area of uh, sloppiness in the book. Uh, I don't think he's really purposely trying to teach uh, modalism or patripassianism. Uh, it just shows that there wasn't care in putting together uh, the, the doctrine of theology uh, behind the book. In fact, one of the thing, reasons I think that that's not the case is he does present three distinct persons. And he even brings up a good point in the book that, uh, think about this, if eternity past is for all eternity, in other words, it's infinite in the direction of the past. If God was only one person before creation, then God could love no one because there would be no one to love. Love must have an object. And if there was only one person who's God for infinity past, all eternity past, God could not love. But with the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a love relationship for all eternity past. That's a good point that he makes. Well, let me deal with the, the most important question, though, the question of God's justice. Ultimately, this is where this leads. Now, there are other problems in the book. I want to deal with the most, most serious uh, problems. There's other problems in the book as well. Mackenzie Phillips and some of the backers who helped to uh, fund the original printing of the shack are very much against any institution or hierarchy. They don't believe there should be any hierarchy in the church. In fact, they're pretty much adamantly against everything that the church stands for. This comes out in the book in several passages. Even the institution of marriage is frowned upon. God doesn't like institutions, including marriage. It's relationship, not institution, according to the shack. Of course, the scriptures are clear that Jesus himself said, Upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are other issues as well, but I want to deal with God's justice. See, ultimately, God's nature is called into question. The nature of God, is God really the judge of the universe? Is God going to really rightly judge and deal with evil and sin, or is he just going to give it a pass? Uh, Let me give you some quotes uh, from the book to show you how the shack ends up dealing with this problem. This is from page um, uh, 121, rather, of the shack. Let me read to you. What about this ultimate problem, the problem of of, uh, hell? But if you are God, this is Max speaking, but if you are God, aren't you the one spilling out great bowls of wrath and throwing people into a burning lake of fire? At that, Papa, uh, uh, he goes on to say, and don't you enjoy punishing those who disappoint you? That's Max's question to God. God's answer. At that, Papa stopped her preparation. She's preparing a meal for Mac. There's a lot of cooking in the book. Preparing a meal for her. Stops working at the meal, turns towards Mac, And this is one of the big turning points of the book. And says, a deep sadness in her eyes. I am not who you think I am, Mackenzie. Now, this is the heart of the problem. The God that he was thinking about was a God of justice. A God that dealt with sin. A God that sets right the balances of justice throughout history. The God who's the judge of the universe. But God explains... I am not who you think I am, Mackenzie. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it, eliminating God as the judge of the universe. Again, the the temptation, anytime you deal with the problem of evil, the temptation is to go away from scriptures and the clear word of God and develop some kind of philosophy in which tries to work around the problem of evil, and especially the problem of hell, 
by dealing with this idea that ultimately everyone uh, makes it to heaven. Everyone ultimately is going to get there. Well, I've got another video for you that may help explain how Paul Young arrived at this. This is back to that same interview on the Hour Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And what he explains is that there was a, a period in his life, about a dozen years, and the whole book, The Shack, is a metaphor of what happened to him in that dozen or so years. And what happened in two days in the shack really covered a period of his life. And he says there's a shack in every one of our hearts. And I think we're going to get some real insight, not just to the question of who God is, but even the question, is Paul Young even a Christian? He's going to address that in this clip. Let's watch it. His weekend in the shack that he spends in the shack. Yeah, Mac is the guy who's the the lead character of the book, essentially. And uh, that weekend represents 11 years of my life. Right. So. How so? Um. You know, a lot of us have great sadnesses and great tragedies. Me, I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, grew up in a religious environment. And, uh, and I really tried to please God through all the religious efforts, you know. Mm-hmm. You try to pray enough and give enough and memorize enough and uh, be involved enough. And, and uh, it never healed the damage inside. I use the shack as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It stands for the heart of a human being, you know. That's what gets hurt on the inside and the dreams get broken and... and uh, People help you build the shack on the inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, mine had a, a lot of abuse and, and violence in it as a child. So I became a performer. You know, you, you set up your little facade on the outside and you play to whoever the audience is. Right. And you're living from the outside in because you've got nothing on the inside that you feel is of any value. Sorry, and, nothing uh, on the inside that you're going to let out. No, uh, you don't want anybody in. That's why we hold secrets, right? right? Because we're afraid if we actually told them that we'd be rejected. But the flip side is... When we try to earn their affection and approval, and we get it, we don't believe it because they don't know we have the secret. Right. See, so we're caught in this, in this jam. So 11 years of my facade being blown up and trying to reconstruct my life, find out who is this God really, and finding out that a lot of it was different than the way I grew up. I'm sure you've, you've heard this lots. Your version of God is not perhaps the version of God that you were taught as a kid. Well, I think that's true. But none of us believes exactly what we did 10 years ago. Right. A lot of us grew up, especially within the religious context of the, the monster God performer requirer, you know. And uh, so it was all about trying to please God. And it really doesn't matter in any religion um, who the God is. You just have to know what the rules are. Right. So it's five pillars in one religion, seven steps in another, a million four hundred and thirty-three thousand four hundred thirteen rules in the other one, right. you know, that I grew up in. Is that the Scientologist one? No, it's okay. a Protestant evangelicalism. <laughs> Well, close. But you see, your version of the God that I got in this book was not the God of the rules. No. It was less. It, it seemed to be less about a structure. Well, rules won't heal you. No, but rules can. Well, I suppose the reason for rules is that they feel some people need a sense and want a sense of community. Well, and, it also and, and gives you power. power. Yeah, and it also gives you a way to judge other people that aren't as good at it. That's as the you word. Are. Your God in this book isn't a judging God. In most other religions, it appears to be a judging God yeah. in the organized context. Was that a key distinction for you? Uh, I think so. Anybody who is, you're a Christian, right? You tell me what one is, and I'll tell you if I'm one of those. Right. You know, I, I'm a Canadian, not a Republican. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, is he a Christian? Well, it all depends on how you define that. Although we now we know now know he's not a Republican, he's a Canadian. I'm glad he clarified that for us. But again, the way he ends up dealing with the problem of evil, he it, it really comes down to the problem of pluralism. The ultimate. evil thing that happens would be a crisis eternity called hell. And so the answer to that, it deals with the problem of pluralism. Pluralism simply means that there are so many different religions out there. And is there only one path or can many paths ultimately lead to God? Uh, why, why would, can a Christian say that their way is the right way and the Muslims are not? And then the Muslims say, no, ours is the only way and yours is not. There must be many paths or many ways. It's the problem of pluralism. And and uh, there's this solution called general universalism. Now, at first glance, it looks like that's what Paul's teaching, but he's, he's not really teaching general universalism. General universalism came in, uh, prominent in the, eight, in the early 19th century in America, and it was the idea that there must be many ways to God, and ultimately everyone goes to God, uh, comes to God, no matter what path. Uh, whether you're an atheist, whether you are a Buddhist, Muslim, all paths, Christian, ultimately lead to God. Now, let me say, that's not what is taught in the shack. That's not what Paul Young is teaching. He's teaching a modified version of uh, general universalism, which is called Christian universalism. 
Now, Christian universalism, the other name for that is universal reconciliation. It almost sounds biblical when you first hear it. See, Paul Young's going to tell you that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That he's the only path. There's not many paths, there's only one path. But here's what he'll go on to say. He'll say that ultimately, every human being who's ever been created, ultimately is going to believe in Jesus, whether they want to or not. Because God loved the world, and the primary attribute that overrules all others, that God is love, means that ultimately everyone will believe in Jesus. In fact, uh, the elect here in the book, The Shack, is everybody. Uh, God is particularly fond of this person and that person. The struggle in The Shack, God is particularly fond of the murderer too, and is is recovering and redeeming, and in the process of drawing the murderer to him, whether the murderer believes in God or Jesus, whether they go to church or not, doesn't matter. Ultimately, everybody's going to believe in Jesus. Now, the problem is, and you should see some of the endorsements on here. Um, Michael W. Smith, this is, this is great. Uh, you can't hardly go to a Starbucks without seeing people reading this. Many evangelical Christians from all different denominations think it's wonderful. But the ultimate message in the shack is one that does not line up with the Word of God. The Word of God could be better described by biblical exclusivity. And uh, biblical exclusivism or exclusivity teaches that there's only one way, and that is through Christ. Let me just read some passages to you before we close from the Word of God, and let's let those ancient words impart. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, but Paul Young says, well, I agree with that. The only path is Jesus, but everybody's going to walk that path. Whether they want to or not, God's going to redeem everyone through Christ. Well, let's keep reading John chapter 5, verses 26 through 29. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. Now, see, again, you won't find any judgment. In in the shack, God doesn't judge anyone. He only has relationships. Because he is the son of man. Christ is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb will hear his voice. Well, see, there you have it. See, ultimately, everybody's going to hear the voice of God, hear the voice of Christ. But keep reading. Verse 29, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. See, again, Paul Young will not deal with a God who's the God of judgment, uh, not in the sense of an eternal hell. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus made it all too clear. Now, again, one of the messages that I like about the shack, and I had several discussions in Atlanta and also in New Orleans, I had several discussions concerning this with Gary Habermas. He's one of the philosophy professors at Liberty University. And he would rightly point out that we discussed this, that, hey, the overall message, and this is part I like about the shack, is the idea, the concept that if you could just have a brief meeting with the God of the universe, All your tears would be wiped away. All your questions would be answered. You wouldn't have a problem with evil. You wouldn't have an issue with why why many of the world's population go to hell. All your questions would be answered. And it will be answered one day when we see God. I like that part of the shack. The problem is the answers that God gives Mackenzie Phillips uh, through Sarah Yu, uh, through Papa, and through Jesus are answers that do not line up with the Word of God. I'll be the first to admit If it was up to me, I would say, hey, let's let all roads lead to heaven. If God came to me and said, James, you know, how would you like it to be? I would say, well, you know, if a person's sincere, let's let all paths lead to God. But the problem is God didn't ask me. And so being a Christ follower, I am forced to uh, go by the, the, the word of our Lord Jesus Christ who made it clear that broads the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in there. It narrows the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. I'm not here to attack people who have read the shack and like it. It was a good, enjoyable read to me, too. 
I don't recommend it because I think it leads people down a wrong path, but I can understand the appeal, and I can also understand why it's so popular because it addresses the questions, the the deep yearnings in virtually every human heart. The problem is not that they're asking the questions. The problem is they've gotten the wrong answers. And as we close out this series on having faith in the midst of turmoil and, and, and tumult, We need to realize that it's a faith of trusting God. Sometimes God does not give us the answer. But I trust the nature of God. I know God is good. I know God is love. Well, then why do people go to hell? I can't tell you that answer fully. But I don't understand a lot of things. I can't understand how God is one and three at the same time. I can, expl- I can tell you it. I can confirm it. I can confess it. But I can't fully understand the nature of God and his trinity. I can't even get my head around the idea of eternal, eternality. The idea that you could be in heaven for a million years and, you're, and there's no time has passed. You still have more and more time. I can say it, but I really can't get my mind around that. But see, I'm not God. And I know and trust God, and I have faith in God even when life crashes in, even when bad things happen. I know that God is calling me to trust when there's a tragedy in my life, and we're all going to face that. Our Missy's going to die too. We're going to face this. Every one of us are. And we have to face life's turmoil with faith. Faith that God is good. Faith that God is ultimately going to uh, have answers for everything that we can't understand in this life. It's easy to trust God when all things are good. But what takes real faith is to trust God when everything you see is stacked against uh, everything that's dear to your heart. At that point, it's time to put our faith and trust in God. Until next time I'm able to be with you, may God richly bless you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for God for giving us your word. Help us that in times of turmoil when our life crashes around us, that we can continue to have faith, not in those things seen, but the substance of things hoped for, knowing that your nature is good and that you are holy and just and that you we can trust you no matter what the circumstances are. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be able to uh, build a bridge to those of other faiths. Help us to be able to speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.